and turn with me to John chapter 6, where our scripture reading for today came from. John chapter 6. And as a follow-up and as a as to like tie up the loose ends of the series that we have been in, in terms of predestination, um, foreknowledge, th these are the things that we were looking at for the past few weeks. Uh, we saw what is the human will was our topic of conversation from the word of God last week. Uh, we saw that we are totally depraved from the word of God and the human will did not lose its natural ability, but the uh, moral ability has been marred and completely depraved and taken out of the question by sin. So it is in bondage. So how then are we saved? Um, are we saved because we let God in or let Christ in? Um, or are we saved because God overrides our will that is in bondage and freeze it so that we can see him. Um, we kind of given away the, the, the sermon ahead of time, but that's the, that's the natural progression of our question. What does the Bible teach about that? Uh, what is not only the Bible teach, but in John chapter six, what we're looking at in these two verses, 44 and 45 is the Lord himself teaching in terms of salvation. So let's read the word of God, pray, and look into it more. John chapter 6, verse 44, 45. I'm actually going to pick it up in verse 43 to give us context. Um, 43 and 44. Jesus answered and said to them, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with humble heart, a broken spirit, knowing that we are unable to understand your truth unless you, by the power of your spirit, illumine the meaning of the word to us. So, Father, we give you this time. We give your spirit. Um, that's not even right. We submit ourselves to the spirit to teach us the truth from your word so that we may be convicted of sin, we may be convicted of righteousness, and we may cling and see the honor and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. So, having established that a few weeks ago, that God works all things together for the good, right? According to his will 
and according to his purpose. These are the things that we've established, having established that he foreknows some people according to his purpose and according to his will, not according to what they do and what they choose. Having established that he predestines people, again, not because of their merit, not because of what they will, what they will choose down the line, but according to his will, having established this, and also having established that because of the total depravity of the willpower, as we saw last week from Genesis chapter 6, um, of our willpower to choose to be saved, today we will attempt to see from God's word, how is it that we are saved? How is it that you are saved? How are you saved? You heard a good sermon and somebody said to you, walk down an aisle, repeat after me, say this prayer and you are saved. And is that why you're saved? How does God save people? If we are totally depraved, that every thought Every intention of the thought of our hearts are evil continually. How can we choose God? How can you choose God? You can't, right? Unless he frees us and leads us to him. Which is really at the heart of this passage that we just read. So let's take a look at the passage that we just read. Um, and notice a couple of things from the context. Notice how Jesus responds. When we hear that you don't have the will to be saved, you don't have the will to choose God, what is the natural response that your heart wants to have? Some type of grumbling. No, nah, I don't think so, Manny. You might be wrong. You might need to go back and study some more. Right? There's, there's some level of grumbling in your heart. So notice these thousands and thousands of people that were following Jesus in the context of our text here. They were grumbling. Verse 41. For the Jews were grumbling about him because he said to them, I am the bread of that came down from heaven, and they're like, ah, I don't know. Even though grumbling to our inability to save ourselves, or to do anything to be saved, maybe a natural reaction, Jesus' response to this grumbling it's very interesting. Look at how he responds. Stop grumbling. Very assertive. Stop your whining could be our contemporary. Stop complaining. Why are we complaining? Why are you complaining? 
Stop it, Jesus says. And the reason why people complain is because there's this sense of dissatisfaction. Now, it's not a satisfying answer that Jesus gave them. Or it's not a satisfying view that Jesus gives them. What do you mean? I, I know you, mom. I know you, daddy. And you're telling me that you came from heaven? And you only do your father's will? That's not, that's not satisfactory. Like, I know where you came from. Like, you, you live down the road in Nazareth, which is a city no one good comes out of that. Like, I'm, I know we, I'm, I'm not satisfied with that answer. There's this sense that some legitimate claim has not been met. That's the cause for grumbling. What they're waiting for as a Messiah was a king that's going to come and, and take them out of their, their state of affairs at the time, which was being oppressed by the Romans. And they, they just wanted them to come and make Israel great again. That's who they're looking for, this king that's going to ride on on this horseback, and he's going to come with his all armies and defeat everybody. And, and as he defeats people, he gives spoils to them, and everybody becomes rich, and everybody's not going to have any needs, and everybody's going to be educated, everybody's going to have... But Jesus doesn't seem to fit that bill. So they start to grumble. And in terms of our salvation... The way that we are saved, the way that God saves us, the way that our willpower is in bondage and we have no willpower to actually choose God, there's actually nothing good in us, that goes against everything that we assume. It's not legitimate. I mean, it's from a young age you started hearing, you're so special. You're so innocent. There's no, you know... And then you look at your surroundings and they tell you, oh, it's a, society corrupts you. It's society's fault. It's that person's fault. And this is why you're, you're a sinner. God sees your heart and he says, no, there's nothing good in you. So there's this tension. There's this dissatisfaction to say, you mean to tell me that I didn't play any part in my salvation? So you start grumbling. Jesus says, stop grumbling. Because it doesn't seem like a legitimate claim that it is only God's will through the gift of Jesus Christ that can satisfy the need for salvation. It's not that God sees down the tunnel of time and knows what you're going to choose, right? Before he makes you, in eternity past, it's not that he, got, he sees down the line of time and says, oh, you know what, this guy and this, this person and that person is going to choose me, so I'm going to predestine them to glory. And this guy and that guy is not going to choose me, and based on their choice, then I'm going to predestine them. So now you're made special already to, to, to respond one way, and God already knows that, so and this is how, no, man, that's not how it works. But it's got to be. It's because I have more faith than the person next to me that I became a believer. Because we heard the same gospel. 
that we need eternal life and we need a savior and his name is Jesus Christ and faith and repentance will give us and you're sitting here and everybody else is sitting at home high on oxy. Or doing whatever else, fill in the blank. What's the difference between you and them? It's gotta be something special to me. No, God says, that's my sovereign will. But wait, that goes against everything that I think about myself because I love myself. Who in here does not love themselves? If something went wrong right now in this room, everybody would leave and protect themselves before they even think about the person next to them. That's natural. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's natural. And because of that nature, anything that comes against and says, the reason why you are saved is not because you are anything special. It's because God chose you. Why did God choose you? Because he did. No, that's not. It's got to be something different than that. Why did God love you? Because he loved you. Why? Because he did. But why though? Because he did. Uh, I, don't, I don't accept that. It's got to be something in me. This is, if you're really thinking about that, this is the point of our grumbling. Because some legitimate claim in our minds has not been met. We're not satisfied with the answer the Bible gives us. That's why the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of, of free will, and the doctrines of grace being irresistible causes us to grumble because we want to have something, some say about it. Jesus says, stop grumbling amongst yourself. It's not human willpower. It's not any merit. It's not your church attendance. It's not your Bible study. It's not, and I keep going back to this because this is what our contemporary lifestyle is. And maybe this is why it's not even the family you're born into. No goodness in your heart. is the reason for salvation. But notice how, where, to whom they were grumbling, by the way. Look down at verse 43. They were grumbling amongst themselves. So they were talking to each other, right? So if we notice if we consider our merits based on our peers, if we're looking at each other, if we're looking at the world outside, considered among one another, there really could be a legitimate case to be made for it, right? Surely we're not as bad as Hitler. We're not as bad as like Ted Bundy and the guy and the serial killers out there, the bank robbers, right? We can we can look at that and say, no, nah, there's got to be something good in us that we don't we don't necessarily because we're comparing each other based on our own standards. 
And that's what they were saying. That's what they were doing. They were grumbling amongst themselves. And in comparison with other people, one might seem to be more deserving of grace than another. Like you being raised in a Christian household, never really doing anything egregious. I mean, the worst thing you did, maybe told a white lie a few times, right? Maybe under your breath said something bad about your parents. Maybe said a few curse words here and there, right? And maybe stole a stick of gum from the store when no one's looking. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a big store. It's Walmart. It's a multi-billion dollar place. So they ain't going to miss that 15 cents worth of gum. You know, it's, it's all right. I didn't do nothing too bad. So I may be more deserving of grace than Hitler. You guys do know who that is, right? I just heard this week on the radio that a lot of um, Gen Zers don't, have the adequate knowledge of history. Hitler killed millions of Jews because he thought that they were a better race, right? So, I mean, if, if we're standing before God and Hitler's there and I'm here and God is choosing to, to say, who should I so show my grace to? Yeah, definitely. I deserve more of God's grace. That's the premise that causes you to grumble when you hear. There's no one good, not, not even one. God saw the intention of the thoughts of the heart of all human beings on earth, and he saw that it was evil continually. Nah, not mine. Maybe every so often when somebody crosses me or something like that. So you start grumbling. Jesus says, no, it's not up to you. There's no merit for you. So in light of this, I want us to look at verse 44, three actions. Three actions in verse 44 that show us the sovereignty of God's will over the will of man and salvation. And this will be your outline. In verse 44, we see three actions. There is a coming to Jesus. When Jesus says, one can come to me. And then there's the drawing of the Father, unless the Father draws me, draws him to me. And then the the raising of the son. So there's three actions, three verbs in this one verse. And these three actions should act as a mirror to reflect upon And also to, to be a source of gratitude and thankfulness. And all spring for an assured hope. This is why these three actions are there. 
So let's take a look at it. One by one. Who can come to Jesus? Who can come to Jesus? Anyone and everyone can come to Jesus. I mean, even in the context of our passage here, there's thousands of people that, that came to Jesus. Men, women, children, backgrounds, rich, poor, everybody, they, they just flock to Jesus. We, all we have to do is just read our Bible and we see all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, soldiers, Roman soldiers, um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Everybody could come to Jesus, right? Like Jesus is not going to say, don't come to me. Then what does he mean by no one can come to him? Seems like he's contradicting himself here. But the coming is not just physically approaching him and saying, or physically following him. The coming we're referring to here, the coming that Jesus is referring to, the kind of coming is one that requires a level of passionate devotion, a level of commitment. This willing commitment to embrace him and to obey him. That's the kind of coming that he's talking about. The kind of coming that he talks about in Luke chapter 6 and verse 47. Where he says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my voice and does them, you notice that? Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them. That's the kind of coming. And again, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That's the kind of coming that Jesus is talking about. One that requires self-denial. One that causes you to carry your cross, as he says it in Luke 14 and 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's the kind of coming to Jesus that he says no one can do it. Are you capable of coming to Jesus in that way? In your sin? Is anyone capable? Jesus' answer? No, you can't. When you are in bondage and sin, when you're dead in sin and transgressions, dead people can't come nowhere. Another thing I wanted to draw your attention to this morning is notice the language of no one can come, not may. I don't know if you've had teachers in, in your school now or in your grade school when you would go to them and say, can I go to the restroom or can I go get water? They will say, sure you can. And then you will get up to go and like, where are you going? Like, but you said I could. He's like, yeah, I said you could. And what they really mean is the question should be, 
May I go? Do I have permission to go? So Jesus doesn't say, no one may come to me. It's not a matter of, you see the language difference, right? Can speaks of an ability. May speaks of a permission. So do you have permission to come to Jesus? Or can you, do you have the ability to come to Jesus? What Jesus focuses on is your ability. Is there ability to come to Jesus without just by our own sheer willpower? Jesus says, no, there's no ability. No one can. This is a universal negative. And this action, or really the lack thereof, because it's saying no one can, should be a mirror to our utter inability to please God by our own merit. So if you think you're doing something for God, and this is why when you show up in heaven or when you show up at the judgment seat, either when he comes back or when you go to him after you die, and this is, this is a fact that it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes to judgment. This is what the Bible teaches us, right? So you die, you stand before God, and he says, all right, on what account should you inherit eternal life? You say, on oh, my attendance of church, I never disrupted anything. I went to church every, every week, listened to the pastor preach. I even had Bible study. I gave 15-minute devotions every day, prayed faithfully. I even actually sang out loud during service. And I gave to the poor, you know. I felt bad when people were hurt. Try to show as much love as possible. And this is why I need to be accepted to, to your kingdom. Jesus says, no one can inherit that. You can't do that. And this should be a mirror looking right at you. That you are not saved because you're special. You are saved because God saved you. Because thinking of your goodness and your status made you come to Christ or you need to do something or to sin less to come to Christ because that's really where we find ourselves either we think that we we, we've done something to gain the grace of God, or we think we need to clean our acts up. You know, I need to sin less. I need to stop these habits before I can really be serious about Jesus. Right? There are certain things that I can't really get over right now. I just, I know I need to stop. But I just can't stop it. Until I stop, I won't be too serious. I won't, I won't come to Jesus. 
Either way, you're thinking you have the ability to do so. And Jesus says, you don't have the ability to do so. Whether you think you're saved by your own merit, or you think you're going to do something before you get to that merit, before Jesus can accept you. There's nothing you can do about it. Bottom line is no one could come to him unless, you see that in verse 44, unless this conditional preposition, the second action takes place, which the second action is the father drawing. Unless the father draws him, unless this condition is met, you cannot approach Jesus and know him as your Savior and Lord. You can name him, you can know him as a, a great moral teacher. Like he can teach you how to be nice and moral. And you can know him as that. You can know him as a great prophet. You can even know him as someone you can call to when you need help. You can know him that way. But you cannot know him as your Savior and as your Lord unless the Father draws you to him. Just because you know him as a teacher, you know him as a prophet, you know him as somebody to look to when you fall on hard times, he wouldn't save you from the bondage of your sins, so from the punishment that was due, that is due for your sins. Nor would you be able to submit to him as Lord and as an owner of your life. Just because you know about him, he's in the Bible, you can read Matthew, Luke, and Mark, and John, and see his life. Oh, he was born in Bethlehem, and there was three... Uh, wise men that came to him and the shepherds came and you answered all the right questions and your, um, and your Bible trivias and stuff like that. That does not mean that you know him salvifically. You know him in a way that he is your Lord and your Savior. You can't know him. You will approach him and you say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. Unless... This condition is met. What is that condition? The second action, the Father drawing you to Him. The Father, in His sovereign will, in His sovereign purpose, in His foreknowledge, in His predestination, has to give you to the Son. No, no, go down to verse 37. Go back up to verse 37 and see what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he says. Notice this. This is something that's happening outside of our own understanding. That the Father is giving the Son people. Unless the Father has given you to the Son, you cannot come to the Son. We can notice this gift of salvation for us, but really the gift primarily is the Father giving an inheritance of believers, that's you and I, 
to the Son. Like you are actually a gift from the Father to Jesus, from God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gift. Notice how he repeats this over and over again in John's account, where in John chapter 17 and verse 2, as he's praying for his disciples, even as you gave him authority, which is he's referring to the, to the Son, over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So you received eternal life as a part of tra a transaction or a gift giving in the heavenly places between the Father and the Son. And again, in, in verse 6 of John 17, he says, I have manifested your name to, to the men whom you gave me out of this world. You have been given to Jesus out of the world. The Father plucks you out of this world and gives you to the Son. That's really what caused your salvation. That word that he uses here in verse 44, where he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, that word means to pull. He pulls him out or he drags him. Or he hauls you away. Unless the Father himself, do, himself does that. He draws, he pulls, he drags, he, he, he hauls your dead and totally depraved heart out of the darkness into light so that you can respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Unless that condition is met, which you're not the one that's doing it, he's the one dragging you. You see that? It's, it's not something that you're actually kind of like crawling or trying so hard to stay above water. There's many imageries out there where it's like there's, there's two cliffs on each side and there's this valley in between. And here's you are on this side, and you and God is on the other side, and you need something to cross over to God. Oh, we need Jesus to be crucified. So the cross is the bridge, and he bridges that gap, and you can walk over to God now. That's not even the image that the Bible gives us. Because you are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, there's a gap between, between you and, and God. Yeah, you're, you're on the wrong side of the cliff and you can't get to God and you need something to get to God. What you need is a new life. You need God himself to reach over to the other side, pick you up and bring you over. He needs to drag you. He needs to pull you. He needs to draw you out. Not just to entice you. Some people say this word means entice. Like, like make it so appealing so you can cross over. It's like, look, man, 
I'm over here. You get eternal life. Come on. I got you, man. And you're like, yeah, I think so. All right. I'm going to do that. And then you cross over. This word was used for um, the Greek word, at least, was used for people drawing water out of a well and the culture. And um, last time I checked, and this is not original to me, uh, I've heard RC use this illustration, so I'm going to use it. You don't stand on top of, at the top of the water well and try to entice the water to come up, right? You have to throw the bucket in, and then you stand and say, hey, water, 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 come up. Water, water, come up. And the water automatically just rises up. That's not how it works. You actually have to throw the bucket in and pull the water up or use whatever machinery or pulley system you have to pull it up. You have to put the effort to get the water from the bottom of the well to the top. This is how you are saved. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, you know what? If you choose me, you have life. If you don't choose me, you have death. Hey, pick, pick your side. I guess you got it. And then just walk off. God draws your incapable, but I say you, by the way, I'm including myself in it. I'm, I'm in it. Our totally depraved hearts. He takes it out of the kingdom of darkness and he puts it and transfers it into the kingdom of light. Paul summarizes this in Colossians 1 and 13 as he's given praise to God who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You know, you notice that language of transferring? God transfers you. He transplants is actually more a technical use of that word. When you have a transplant, you take something from somewhere and you put it in something else. That's what God does when He saves you. Because your salvation is a gift. Primarily not to you, but in a sense to the Son. The Father gives you to the Son in His sovereign will, in His sovereign purpose, in His sovereign knowledge. And He draws and He pulls you to His Son and renders you worthy and grants you access. Notice what He says in verse 56. He repeats this by the way, in, uh, three times. We saw this already in verse 37, where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then we saw this in verse 44, no one could come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, in verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless... It has been granted him from the Father. 
the Father grants this. The Father gives you to the Son, He draws you to Him, and He grants access that you may come to Him. Through the Spirit who gives life. Right? This is what he says in verse 63. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But some of you, verse 64, who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. Why? I mean, if anybody should believe, it should be them and not context. They just saw Jesus feed thousands with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. And he says, this is the reason why I told you that no one could come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. not because of your merit knowing that God has given you the father has given you to the son how much should you praise him for this how much does it speak of his sovereign will and his sovereign power that he does not invade your ability to choose and yet he overrides and breaks the bondage of sin and draws you to Him when you're not able to. How much gratefulness should you have to Him? Because He is able to accomplish this with you, with me, despite our inability. Not just us in this room, by the way. He's been doing this for generations. Since the beginning of time, God has been doing this. You realize how much power that requires? How much sovereignty God has over the lives of people who are wretched sinners? This should cause you to be in awe of Him and fill your heart with gratitude. As He's bringing you to Jesus in repentance and faith. And this is not just the end, by the way. Bringing you to Jesus in repentance and faith is only the start, by the way, according to the text that we're looking at. It's only the start of this new life. This is where that third action we looked at, the Son receives you from the Father, and the Son acts as well. So here we see our lack of action. We can't act, but the Father acts, and the Son acts positively we act negatively for salvation what does the son do he says i will raise him up on the last day 
That's the third act. The sun raising you up. That's a euphemism for or a figure of speech for resurrection. Your life is not just what you consider it to be now. As a believer, you are given a new life. As those who have been drawn by the Father to the Son, the Son completes the action, closes the loop, if you will, by giving you a new life as a present possession. You have new life. But it's still the goal of resurrection ahead. Like this physical life will end for all of us. That's given to us. We will die. Jesus promised this. But that's not all for you. You actually can look and hope that you will be raised up with Jesus. You have new life now that you live as a believer, that you don't live as, a, as the old you, so to speak. But there's life to come. When you come to Christ, by the sovereign drawing of the Father, you are given new life. You have been made alive while you were dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. And you were dead in your transgression and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sense of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by the nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. In verse 5 through 7, of that same chapter in Ephesians says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. You have been given this life now. He made us alive now with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him in the present and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in the present. Why? Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. You have hope that one day, when you die, you will be raised up. As you're looking forward to the consummation of the resurrection. Paul describes this, by the way, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, you can just listen to it, where he says, Now I say this, brothers, when you and I think of this, when you think of being saved, being drawn by the Father to the Son and given new life, that doesn't just end there. Oh, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm in. All right. I made it. Now everybody is out. And I'm good. It doesn't end there. Because the same end of those who you consider to be on the outside is waiting for you too. 
which is physical death. But they don't have hope. And you have hope. Because your life doesn't end there. Paul reminds us of this, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will, we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. You, you hear the hope that you have? That the struggles that you have with sin today, the constant failure to meet God's standards, even knowing Him in, in, in a way that, that saves you in your walk of sanctification, like that struggle ends in a twinkling, in a twinkling of an eye. We will be changed. This mortal body we walk around with will be changed into will take on the immortal. This corruptible body that we have that is susceptible to a virus that's making me congested right now, even as we speak, and I'm, 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 I'm ill, and I get hurt, and you get hurt, and you get your feelings get hurt, and there's pain and suffering, all these things. This shall all pass because God sovereignly saved you. You have hope to look forward and because He draws you to the Son, because His sovereign will overrides your will, now the Son can come and raise you up on the last day. And this is the hope that you have. The dead will be raised incorruptible. This corruptible puts on incorruptible, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then will come about the word that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And you can say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because the, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sum of all this, everything that we've been discussing for the past few weeks, is this, that you may know your inability to come to Christ on your own, but to praise and honor and glorify the Father who grants you this grace and to be steadfast in your hope of your inheritance because God has sovereignly willed and purposed it. So as we conclude our series 
on predestination and free will. I want us to remind, I want to remind you, I want us to remember that these doctrines, these teachings are not to be reasons to grumble and fight and be confused about the love and the grace and the faithfulness of God. The Bible teaches us these things. Because they're intended to be reasons to grow in adoration to our sovereign Lord, to our sovereign Father, to the sovereignty of His Spirit, like Peter. I want to finish there. If you would look down. John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. When Simon Peter answered him, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy one of God, Holy Son of God. These teachings are there to draw us to Christ and to come in submission, adoration for His sovereignty, not to puff ourselves up. Let's pray. Father, our God, we're so thankful that you've given us this time in a way that is unmerited, undeserved. It's a grace that abounds even to the day. So grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for showing us our inability to come to your Son, Jesus Christ, to be saved, unless you yourself, O oh Father, cause us to come to him and we want to honor you we want to glorify you we want to say thank you for doing that father let us always be reminded of the humility that is required that this teaching requires so that we may utterly and completely be dependent on you for our sustenance on your son who is the bread that comes from heaven and for your spirit that gives us life so father continue to work this truth that you've taught us in our lives may your spirit apply it in the areas of our lives where there are questions where there are doubts where there's immaturity, we pray that you continue to work in our hearts because it is written, it is God who gives the power both to will and to do according to his purposes. 
So we submit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.